The best way to have one's project fail is to not plan. In this series, a lesson from Nehemiah, how to complete a project, plan, or idea successfully, we'll look at what Nehemiah did for his project and how we can apply similar principles to our own endeavors. Let's jump in. Well, tonight we're continuing our lesson from Nehemiah. For me, Nehemiah is one of those neglected studies in the Bible. You don't, you don't in my opinion, see enough attention given to it. it he, he's, it's in the Old Testament, and uh, I don't know if I've ever heard anybody teach on Nehemiah. You have, uh-huh. I, uh huh. I have not. And I think that it's something that's missed because Nehemiah presents one of the best models for how to set a goal, how to, to go about doing the things that are necessary to prepare for any plan or project, how to carry it out, how to accomplish it, how to get God involved in it, how to get the people necessary involved, and how to stick with it against any attacks of the enemy, against any attacks that come from within, and they come from both without and within, and how to motivate the people. And one of the things that, uh, that I'll touch on later, and hopefully we'll get to that tonight, is that his character and his example is such a good one in terms of the kind of person he was. The reason he was able to motivate people so strongly is that they could see the God in him through his demeanor and behavior. He was a very generous, kind person who helped people, and he didn't talk about it, and you don't, you don't even know about this until... Uh, the sixth chapter where he makes reference to it himself, but you don't know that he's been doing good from the time that he arrived back in uh, Judah, in the city of Jerusalem. So he started right off the bat in helping people and providing money to them, food and all kinds of assistance, which he, he and his companions from Persia who had come with him, they came with money and resources and they shared it with the people. And so, so they saw in him a person who really was of God, and therefore when he spoke, they would respond to him because that godlike character uh, shone through uh, his face. And so that's very important. So anyway, uh, we left off last week. I think we'd gotten up to step four in the model. So let me review uh, one through four right quick, and then we'll pick it up from there. Step one, and again, it's not to, to make you lazy tonight, but I am going to hand this entire thing out to you next week because uh, we'll finish this next week because there's another aspect of this that we're going to talk about, and hopefully we'll finish the steps tonight. But anyway, step one is to seek help from the highest authority, which is the Father in heaven, and make God a partner in your project. And of course, we know Nehemiah did this. He did this in his daily prayers before he undertook the mission, and he continued to pray throughout the mission. Uh, daily. In fact, he prayed twice a day, at least. And he constantly goes back to the Father and seeks God's help and guidance. Step two, seek help from the highest authority on earth to whom you have access. And of course, he was fortunate. He had access to the king. And of course, the king had all the resources. And I went over the things that the king provided to him, 
based on his request. He did not hesitate to ask for what he needed. And I, I said how important it was that if you have a mission that requires $100, don't ask for $10. Ask for what it'll take to accomplish the mission. And he did. He asked for everything. The materials, he asked, it doesn't state it, but he obviously asked for money. He asked the king to send him. Sing, sit, the king sent him with a protecting guard that accompanied him through the territories beyond the river. When, they, when it says beyond the river, it's talking about the Euphrates River. And if you look at the map, that's what surrounded that area. Beyond that, um, all kinds of enemies and so forth. But the king controlled the whole territory. So if he had letters from the king, that was his safe passage that he would give to the governors of those regions and so forth. So he asked for what he needed. Number three, uh, and you can look here, in this case, look at Nehemiah 2.10, because it happens early on in the, in fact, let me go there too, and we'll just look at that. Uh, number three is be prepared, be prepared for the attack of the enemy. I have to remember I'm not talking to myself. <laughs> be prepared for the attack of the enemy. And I say that uh, if you and your plan uh, is attacked, it's a good confirmation that you are doing a right and godly mission. If nobody bothers you, if you're not troubled, <laughs> if you're not harassed, it could be because you're not doing anything. <laughs> so forth. <laughs> so I, I, I see that. And you know it's true, by the way. You know that, that sometimes you're going along pretty well, and then you go to church, and you're moved, and you accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, and, and, you, do, and you even go and get uh, filled with, uh, you know, baptized with the Holy Spirit. And then it seems like after that, all hell breaks loose, and so on. So, because you become a target because you are someone who can be valuable in the body of Christ, and the enemy hates it, so you will be attacked. So I say if you're attacked, well, two things. If you're attacked, number one, it could be because you need to be. because of who you are, but most likely it's because you're doing the right thing. You're doing a good work. And uh, there are some people, some uh, spiritual religious teachers who define God by adding another O. God is good. So if you're doing a good work, you're doing a God work. And that may open you up for attack. So step four, and this is really important because we all have big mouths. It says, keep your idea a secret until you have it completely thought out. And we see that Nehemiah did it. Now, I've mentioned this last week, but I don't think I directed you to the passages. So you're in chapter 2. Let's look at, at verse 12. And uh, I'll read it, and you can follow along. He says, then I arose in the night, and I and a few men went uh, with me. I told no one uh, what, what my God had put in my heart to do at Jerusalem. In, in verse 11, he says, so I came to Jerusalem. He made a trip to Jerusalem. And uh, uh, he was there for three days. He said, he told no one except uh, a few men that he took with him. And he only took one animal, and that was the horse on which he was riding. In other words, he didn't want to come in and make a lot of noise and, 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 and draw a lot of attention. And when you read that further, you see that when he came to uh, Jerusalem... He spent several days scouting out the situation, seeing what was wrong, how bad it was, what needed repairing, 
and how bad it needed repairing and so forth before he said any before he said anything to the local rulers and uh, people who were there after he had done his preliminary work it's when he uh, revealed to them what he uh, what he had come for and uh, so let's see what it says uh, about that which is step, if the step four was to keep it secret. Step five is step five, which really starts us tonight. When your plans are fully developed, then make your plan public to a larger group or people you need to involve and mobilize and make the goal their goal. In other words, when your plan is fully developed, ready to be revealed, you make that plan public to the larger group of people you need to involve and mobilize and help them make the plan their plan. And this is exactly what he did. So at verse 217, and you can look with me, it says, then I said to them, and the them he's referring to are the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials and workers that are mentioned in verse 16. He says, you see the distress that we are on, how Jerusalem lies waste and the gates are burned with fire. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem, that we may no longer be a reproach. You remember they were, uh, Judah and Jerusalem was the laughing stock in that region. All of the different tribes, all of the ites, you know, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Ashdodites, and the, and the Moabites, and all of them, they were all the enemies. They all lived in that, in that area surrounding Jerusalem. And they all laughed at uh, the state of affairs in, 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 in Jerusalem. So he appeals to the Jews' historical pride and, and, and nationalism. He pointed out how once they were very powerful and, uh, and an important commercial uh, territory in the area where trade and commerce took place. And he was saying, okay, let's, but no wall meant you had no protection. Anybody could come in and attack you. The wall was very important for security and protection. So he says, let's come, let us build the wall. This is in Nehemiah 2.17. The very next verse, 2.18, he says, and remember, it's, he's telling the story. Nehemiah is narrating the story. He says, this is 2.18, and I told them of the hand of God, which had been good upon me, and also of the king's words that he had spoken to me. So they said, let us rise up and build you see that in 2.18. So they have now made the mission their mission. And it says, then they set their hands to do this good work. They had bought into the project. That's number five. Make your plans known to those who you want to uh, involve and mobilize. And then help to make the goal their goal. <coughs> Step six is to be sure your plan remains God's plan which is what you did in the beginning, in step one, and you will attract the resources and people needed to carry it out. In other words, if you, if you and God are working in tandem, then it's almost miraculous that all of the resources, no matter how diverse, and the people you need uh, to help will somehow be attracted to you. And you don't even know where they come from. You don't even necessarily know them and so forth. Well, this is exactly what happened here. Remember, his first uh, resource giver was the king in terms of all the material. And then we just saw how he got the people 
uh, motivated by appealing to their nationalism and making the project their project. So we got the people involved. And let me say something about the people. It's not always clear in the story. You have to really read it and then you do your collateral historical research. Uh, the people, by and large, who were at Jerusalem, these were not people who worked in this kind of work. In other words, working with stone and, 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 and heavy construction. Those people were jewelers. They made perfume. They were farmers. They were, they were gardeners and, and, and so on. They tilled the land. And he got them motivated, so they all became uh, builders and so forth. And this reminds me of uh, what I saw over 40 years ago when uh, Apostle Price uh, began his development of Crenshaw Christian Center. He was in a little church that held about 150 people on West Washington. We call it Carmona. It was on Carmona in West Washington. And when he got a hold of the word, the word of faith, that little church burst to the scene. There were five or six hundred people trying to pack their way into that little church and so forth. And, and of course, he knew he had to, had to move. So he separated from the ministerial alliance that he was part of. It was a Christian ministerial, uh, CMA, Christian Ministerial Alliance, and launched out on his own and found this beautiful property on Crenshaw Boulevard. And that's where the name Crenshaw comes from. Crenshaw, beautiful church. And uh, I remember going to look at it, but they needed financing. Here was this little church. It was pretty much like where we were in 2004, trying to buy 96th Street. Banks were not lending money that readily to churches because churches weren't that reliable and so forth. So uh, they tried a number of, church, number of churches, a number of banks, and, and met with, with little success. But my aunt, that's Tina Thomas, my father's sister was active in real estate and she had contacts and she was a salesperson to end all salespersons and she went to various banks and she finally went, got to uh, uh, this one bank out there. That bank has since been merged into uh, some of the other banks. But that bank, and for some reason, that bank took to the mission and decided to loan them money. Now, it's interesting that the chairman of that bank was the father of one of my classmates, a female at, at Occidental College, and, uh, and these were good people. They were on the board of trustees of Occidental College, and they all knew me because I was the editor of the paper and president of the student body. Now, I'm not saying that connection had anything with her success, but you don't know what influences work together. But anyway, this bank took a chance and loaned them the money to buy this building. Beautiful building. Beautiful building. And he immediately began to attract all of the resources he needed. Everything that he needed, whether it was ushers, hostesses, nursery people, teachers, all appeared and became part of the, of, of, of the church. Technical people he needed. People to do the sound like those good people in the back, so forth. But he attracted people who knew what they were doing. <laughs> of course, I'm kidding. Everybody had to learn, but he attracted people. And then, of course, when he started the television program, that was all done locally. 
He had people who, were, who had learned the trade and they were able to produce the initial program, television programs right there on, on the campus. We call it the campus. Every resource he needed, not to mention the financial resources. So when they needed to move into larger quarters from Crenshaw Boulevard and spotted Pepperdine College, which was moving to Malibu, some rich people had given them this beautiful land in Malibu, the campus was up for sale and they couldn't find a buyer and the city was involved. So Crenshaw made an offer on that land. Now other people were interested in land and other people were claiming that property. And doesn't this sound familiar to 96th Street? And so on. But Crenshaw ended up getting that property and the necessary loans and everything worked out. But the beautiful thing is when they had the groundbreaking ceremony that the combination of the land and the property and the development, $26 million, was paid off in full because he had attracted the resource uh, that he needed. So the point is, is that when you're doing a good work, which is a God work, you will attract the resources that you need. You've got to make sure that you make God a part of, of the project and, and, and keep the project in line with the word of God and you can and you will attract the resources uh, that you need. Uh, that's step six. And let me repeat it. That step six was be sure your plan remains God's plan and you will attract the resources and people needed to carry it out. Uh, and that's what, exactly what Nehemiah did. And Apostle Price, of course, is a living example of that. Now, the enemies are going to always raise their heads again and again, as they do in this story when you read it. And they did against Crenshaw. You had people who camped out on the property and said that that property was their property. They wouldn't, they wouldn't leave. You know? and so you had everything. Uh, and of course, you know, if you study uh, uh, Apostle Price and the things that were written about him, the so-called faith message, and it's not a faith, faith is, as you know, is, 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 is a way of life, came under attack from traditional religious people. How many of you ever listened to The Answer Man on radio? Answer Man on radio. He might be on television as well. Answer Man on radio way back then, he, 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 it became a personal project where he has to attack Apostle Price. And on the faith message, they said it wasn't, wasn't real. And you've heard all of the verses from the Bible cannot please God without faith. The just shall live by faith. And the word we preach, which is a word of faith and so forth and so on. But they, they attack that. And I can remember being out uh, at a bookstore in Anaheim out towards Disneyland. And I went in to see if they had any of, this was a, a, a religious bookstore, if they had any of Dr. Price's books. He had about 30 some books at that point. And when I mentioned his name, I said, Dr. Price, that man is going to hell. <laughs> <laughs> Because they had been taught that he, what he was teaching was blasphemy. And, uh, and, and for us who've listened, he, it's not anything he made up. It's strictly from the word. Strictly from the word. I don't know what those people were studying. I really don't when you, when you think about it. And so, so anyway, uh, the, uh, he not only survived all of that, but he went on and, of course, established the television program, which has run for over 35 years. And again, a quick word about that. I don't want to lose our way here, but I remember when he presented the format to the TV channel, 
Channel 5, Channel 11, those were major stations. And also, also he discussed it with uh, Ken Copeland, they were good friends. And Copeland said, you will never succeed. You're talking about a program where you teach for 55 minutes and there's no music and there's no this and there's no that. He said, that has never worked on TV, it will not fail. Well, we're now in the 37th year of that failure and so forth. No one had ever come out there with just the Bible, with just a suit on, not a robe, not a, uh, a halo and so forth and so on and, and, and taught the word, but he did. And it's been one of the most popular religious, it's, it's now the longest running, continuous running uh, religious program on TV. Um, the uh, Crystal Cathedral, his program was the longest running before that. Uh, but now Apostle Price's program, in other words, Ever Increasing Faith is the longest continuous running religious broadcast uh, in television history and so forth. All right, that was uh, number six. Number seven, learn to delegate and share responsibility. Now you see this at chapter three, and let's just take it. We're not going to read it because I'll explain it to you. Chapter three really is the rebuilding of the wall. And what, you can read this and you'll see a lot of family names. This family did this portion of the wall. This family did this gate. This one did this bridge. This one covered this opening. What he did is that he, he knew that he couldn't build the wall by himself or with the group of people that he brought with him. So he engaged the people who were there. And by families was a good way to do it. He said, okay, family, you take this part of the wall. You take this part of the wall. You who live in the southeast section, you do that part because your, your home is near there. So he delegated to people. So, it, it, so what uh, some were appointed to, to build the gate, some worked on the towers, others built the section of the wall where their homes were located. When some leaders thought that they were too important to work, he found men in their communities to do the work. So good motivator, good delegator, and a good manager, a good project manager. So he got everybody, for the most part, involved in this project. You have to learn to delegate and share the responsibility. There is any project that's of any consequence is usually not a one-man show and so on. So you need to get uh, the people involved. And what this listing of names in three shows us is that he didn't mind sharing the the, uh, the, uh, I mean, oh, what word am I looking for? No, 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 he didn't mind sharing. I mean, sharing who was doing help in addition to himself. In other words, he didn't say, I'm doing all the work. In other words, he didn't, he didn't mind complimenting and he didn't mind sharing in the credit. I couldn't think of the word and so forth. And he goes out of his way to list them in detail here. And remember, this is now in the Bible. So he made sure that all of those families' names were mentioned, where they built, what sections they built, and so forth. And this became part of the history. He didn't, he didn't mind giving credit, is what I'm saying, to others. I couldn't think of the phrase. Well, I should have written it down. Uh, and so on. So we have to be that same way. In other words, if you have a disease of me, or if you have eye trouble, that's E-Y-E -E trouble, then you may be in trouble because, you know, 
it, it's, it's not a one man, it's not a one man show. It's not a one man show. And he was willing to share the responsibility and share the credit. Very important. Uh, that's step seven. Learn to delegate and share responsibility and share the credit. I didn't have that, but I think that's a good thing to add to number seven. And step eight, and this is important because the enemies continue to raise their ugly heads. Eight, develop a plan to defend your idea or project against the plots of the enemy. Now, this is important because, again, if you're doing a good work, if you're doing God's work, it's not when, it's not if the attacks are going to come, it's when they're going to come. And they most certainly are going to come. And if you're living in hostile territory, which we are, if you're, you're in the body of Christ, you're in hostile territory. Well, Nehemiah and Judah and Jerusalem were definitely in hostile territory. You had all of the surrounding tribes. They all lived in the, in, 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 in the same general area. And these are all of the, as I say, the Ites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Ashdodites, and the Hittites, and, and so forth. And these are all enemies. And uh, they did not like to see what was happening. They didn't like to see this resurgence of Judah. Uh, and certainly didn't like the idea of the wall being developed. So obviously, they opposed it. But again, if God is part of your project, and you're partners with God, then they're not just opposing you, they're opposing God, and so on. So you can expect God to fight on your behalf. Now look at verse 4-8 in Nehemiah, where all of them conspired together to come and attack Jerusalem and create confusion. Now they all are referring to the enemies. That's Sanballat, that's Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the Ashdodites, and all the otherites uh, were conspiring. Uh, to see what they could do to disrupt the building process. And look at 4.9. It reads, Nevertheless, we made our prayer to our God, and because of them, because of the enemies, we set a watch against them day and night. And that's what you have to do. You have to watch day and night against uh, the attacks. So at Nehemiah 4.11, the enemies plot to attack the city. And it reads, Nehemiah 4.11, you can read along with me. And our adversary said, they will neither know or see anything till we come into their midst and kill them and cause the work to cease. Remember, they could, they, everybody traveled and they intermingled. And remember, the Arabs are the cousins of the Jews. They look like the Jews and so forth. If you take off your Arab garb and put on a yarmulke, you look just like... Uh, so they knew that they could come in and infiltrate the... Uh, the, uh, the city and so forth. So what they're saying is that we'll come in their midst and kill them and cause the work to cease. However, because of what I just said, everybody sort of lived together. Not everybody lived within the walls of the city. You couldn't. And I forgot to tell you this. To make the job manageable, Nehemiah drew smaller boundaries around Jerusalem so he could, uh, you know, do a job that was manageable. And so a lot of the Jews lived outside the city, outside the walls, and they lived very close to the villages where the enemies lived. So, and that's what this next uh, sentence is. We're still looking at 411. It says, however, there were Jews who worked on the wall who actually, oh, that's me, that's my writing. It's not, you're not going to see that there. 
However, there were Jews who worked on the wall who actually lived outside the city near the enemies, and they heard about the enemy's plan for sneak attack. I, that, that's my writing. That's not in the Bible. Uh, but you'll find this at Nehemiah 4.12. Look at 4.12. So it was when the Jews who dwelt near them, near the enemies, came and told us ten times, and they said, from whatever place you turn, they will be upon us, because they had heard that that's what they were going to do. When they said, told us ten times, in other words, they wanted to make sure they heard what they were telling them. Look, I'm telling you, they're going to do this. I'm telling you, they're going to do this. I'm telling you, they're going to do this, and so forth. So as a result of that, Nehemiah was able to plan uh, for, the, for any possible attack. Look at Nehemiah 4.13. Therefore, I positioned men behind the lower parts of the wall at the opening. And this is where most likely uh, the enemy would come in. And I set people according to the families with their swords, their spears, and their bows. These were the most likely places where any attack would occur. Then Nehemiah told the people, do not be afraid of them. This is at 414. Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, great and awesome. At 415, and it happened when our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had brought their plot to nothing. In other words, their plans for a sneak attack, that all of us returned to the wall, everyone to his work. In other words, since Nehemiah and the Jews knew about the plans of the enemies, there could be no secret attack, and they were prepared for such, and their plans could not succeed. They failed because God was helping the Jews, uh, and they were because Nehemiah had got God on their side. You may, you may also uh, have uh, earthly weapons of war. You may, meaning us. I'm, this is me writing here. I forget who's writing and, and, and that I'm writing some of this myself. <laughs> You may have earthly weapons, uh, as the Jews did, who worked on rebuilding the wall. To be ready for any sudden attack, the workers on the wall carried a work tool in one hand and a weapon in the other hand. Look at 417. You can read it along with me. Those who built on the wall and those who carried burdens loaded themselves so that with one hand they worked at construction and with the other hand held a weapon. 418. Every one of the builders had his sword girded at his side as he built. And the one who sounded the trumpet was beside me. He would sound the trumpet if, if there was an attack and so forth. And they had made arrangements that if you heard the, tr the trumpet, you would go to a certain, everybody would rush to a certain section where they would have uh, protection in numbers and so forth. So again, at every challenge, Nehemiah resorted to prayer first and asked God for help and guidance. He then reminded the people that God was with them and would fight for them. You go back to Nehemiah 4. Uh, chapter 4, where he prays to God that the enemies will suffer the same humiliation from their enemies that the Jews suffered and even end up as captives themselves. At Nehemiah 4, verse 20, and if you don't get all this down, I'm going to give this to you. Uh, Nehemiah says this to the people. That's verse 4 and 20. He says this to the people. Whenever you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. That's the designated place I just mentioned. Our God will fight for us. Step nine, when you make your project God's project, you can expect God to defend you against the attack of the enemy. And we see this in other parts of the Bible. I'm just going to refer you to some. Because as we prepare to fight our enemies today, Nehemiah is an excellent reminder to us that the battle is not ours, but God. And you've heard that in other passages, the battle is not yours, but God's. 
And let me just show you where a, a, a few of those are. Uh, Nehemiah constantly reminded the people that God would fight on their behalf. We see this in 2 Chronicles chapter 20, verse 15. 2 Chronicles chapter 20, verse 15. And this is the Spirit of the Lord speaking to uh, the people uh, and King Jehoshaphat. And you've heard this story. He says, listen, all of you of Judah and you inhabitants of Jerusalem and you, King Jehoshaphat, thus says the Lord to you, do not be afraid nor dismayed because of this great multitude. That's a surrounding army surrounding them, for the battle is not yours, but God's. Second Chronicles 2015. In 1 Samuel chapter 17, 47, we get, and this is important here, we get the knowledge that God does not fight with sword and spears. And that's exactly what this says. That's 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 47. It says, then all the assembly shall know that the Lord does not save with sword and spear. For the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you, meaning the enemy, into our hands. We are reminded that God is, if God is for us, who can be against us? In 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 16, and you know this story. This is the story of Elisha. You remember the story of Elisha? Uh, he's surrounded, and he tells the, the servant to go out and, and, and look and see. And the servant goes out, and he sees all these Syrians surrounding uh, where they are and so forth. And he comes and says, Master, Master, we will surely perish. I'm paraphrasing and so forth. And uh, Elisha says that, uh, uh, well, he says he prays that the, the, the eyes of a servant will be open so he can really see. And uh, when the eyes of a servant is open, he sees that there are chariots of fire surrounding and protecting Elisha. That's the story. And he says to the servant, do not fear. For those who are with us are more than those who are with them. This is 2 Kings 6.16. You've heard the story before. And we have in 1 John 4.4, 4, and you know this because we use it all the time. We are told, you are of God, little children, and have overcome them because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. That's pretty much saying the same thing that we just read in Kings and so forth. So this is all a reminder of us about Ephesians 6.10, about putting on the whole armor of God and using the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, Ephesians 6.10. We won't go there. And then we know from 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 4 and 5, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 4 and 5, we're told the following, and we say this, I don't think a week goes by that somebody doesn't say this in some meeting, for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments in every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of God. So if our weapons are not carnal, what are, are our weapons? And what would you list as one of our weapons? Somebody said prayer. What's another one? The word, the truth. Faith. And don't leave out this love, which really is the motivator and everything else works through love. And of course, our righteousness. These are not carnal weapons, but these are some of our weapons. There are others, but these are principal ones. Prayer, faith, the word, the truth, love, 
and righteousness and so forth. So step 10, you have to deal effectively and fairly with problems that rise from within uh, your group. And these do crop up and so forth. And at Nehemiah 5.1, you can look at this, uh, Nehemiah 5.1 states, and there was a great outcry of the people and their wives against the Jewish brethren. And we're not going to read all of this, but their complaints was, was simply this, that they did not have enough food to eat for their families. Some had to sell their fields, their vineyards, and their homes to raise money to pay the taxes that belonged to the king or to just survive. Others had to do something that was extraordinary. They had to sell some of their sons and daughters into slavery with other Jews in order to raise money. And then others borrowed from the rich people there at Jerusalem uh, to pay the king's taxes and to have food for grain and so forth. Because what, what, what you may not know is there was a great famine that overtook the land there and people were starving. And so they had to, they had to live. But the problem with the people who lent the money, they charged exorbitant, usurious interest rates. They were taking advantage of their brother and so forth. So when Nehemiah heard about the complaints of the people, he was angry. Look at Nehemiah 5, chapter 5, verses 6 and 7. And it says, I became very angry when I heard their outcry and those words, meaning the words they were telling them, how they took their lands and property and the kids and the slavery and so forth. And then he did something else. This is at verse 7. That's Nehemiah 5, 7. After serious thought, and that's a very important thing because he thought about it before he decided what to do. I rebuked the nobles and rulers and said to them, each of you is exacting usury from his brother. So I called a great assembly against him. He called all the people together and talked about him. And he tells the people that, uh, that, and he tells them for the first time that he and his companions who had come from Persia, being sent by the king, based on their ability and their resource, they had tried to redeem their Jewish brethren who were sold to other nations. And he's saying here, their own people were making them slaves again. And they were, they were selling them. In other words, in order to raise money, they were taking in slaves, Jewish slaves, not, not Ammonites and Ashtonites, but Jewish slaves and so forth. And, 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 and Nehemiah said, how could you do such a dastardly thing uh, knowing uh, uh, the God that we serve? And he goes on to tell them that what they were doing is not right in the sight of God. And it says, if you read, read on there, that the rich rulers were silenced and they found nothing to say. And at verse 10, again, this is at chapter 5, Nehemiah says, I also, with my brethren and my servants, am lending them money and grain, but charging no interest. Please let us stop this usury. Nehemiah 5.11, Nehemiah tells the rich, Restore now to them, even this day, their lands, their vineyards, their olive groves, and their houses, also a hundredth of the money and grain, the new wine and the oil that you have charged them, and so forth. And again, because of who he was, his relationship with God, and so forth. Look at what happens at verse 12 in chapter 5. They, and the they being the chief men and officials said, we will restore it and will require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And then he calls the priests and has them 
and has them and have and he and he has the priest draw up an oath that all of the people who made agreements of restoration sign that they would do this and and carry out what they had pledged to do and uh, at the end of the meeting that's uh, recorded at Nehemiah 513 it is recorded and all of the assembly said amen and praise the Lord then the people did according to this promise, this promise of restoration and so forth. So it's even able to see that. So in chapter five, we really see the force of Nehemiah's God-fearing character and the impact of, of his own inspiring, inspiring nature. Very important, the kind of leader you are and so forth. So he was a good leader and he was a good model. And so the people didn't hesitate uh, to follow. And he exhibited what Paul wrote to Timothy about in because it came to my mind, and you know, this is the scripture I was discussing with you, uh, Nadine. And I said I couldn't remember what it was, but, uh, but in writing this, it came to my mind. So, in the, t in the scripture came to me. It's 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5. And this is what Nehemiah exemplified. This is what Paul is writing to Tim Timothy. 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy, 1, 5. And he says, now the purpose of the commandment, this is the commandment of love is love from a pure heart, love from a good conscience, and that's a good conscience towards all men, and love from sincere faith. People will line up and follow a leader who displays these characteristics. Pure heart, sincere faith, and a good conscience. And that's what Nehemiah exhibited. So when we're trying to accomplish anything, we have to exhibit that same kind of strong leadership. So forth. So when we are attempting to rebuild a wall in our life or launch out with a new idea or project, the enemies within might be family members, co-workers, team members, or people who work in your unit at work. And the enemy within, and this is really important, might be the fears and doubts in your own mind. You have to deal with all of these. Step 11, maintain your focus and determination and let nothing take you from your project. As the wall was being completed, the enemies make a last ditch effort to destroy Nehemiah. This is in chapter 6. At 6-1, Nehemiah, 6-1, uh, we find this. Now it happened that when Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem, and the Arab, uh, and the rest of our enemies heard that I had rebuilt a wall, it was pretty much completed, and that there were no breaks in it left, though at that time I had not hung the doors and the gates. That, that Sanballat and Geshem sent to me saying, come, let us meet together among the villagers in the plain of Ono. But they thought to do me harm. I'm reading at Nehemiah 6.2. They invited him to come meet them. They were, they, what they said, they sent a peace mission saying, we want to talk peace. But they thought to do me harm. What they had hoped was to lure him out away from Jerusalem and kill him. And if you kill the leader, <laughs> the sheep scatter. They figured without a leader, he was a strong leader the people might fall back in the disarray and, 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 and not completely succeed in, in doing the job of rebuilding the wall and so forth. Uh, so, but Nehemiah saw through this and, and, and I say, you've got to pray for discernment. When you are in a leadership position or just in regular life, that's always been my prayer to the Father for discernment. 
And as I say, and you've, some of you have heard me say this, you need to be able to separate the prospects from the suspects. And at church, we get a lot of them. You get people, I, there's not a, uh, Karen can tell you, they, they call, she blocks a lot of them. Somebody is always proposing a scheme to, quote, raise money for the church. You can be sure that for the most part, if it's raising money for the church, their cut is a significant part of it. Do you know, I'm, I'm digressing, uh, guys over there, I'm going to take a few minutes because I'm going to finish the last point tonight, that you look at Ben Carson's campaign, he raised a lot of money, but you know that 70% plus of that money went to the people raising the money, and so on. So I say you have to be able, through discernment, separate the prospects from the suspects. We've had individuals come to this ministry, and certainly out at Crenshaw, where their, ostent, where their main reason in joining the church was to position themselves for personal gain and so forth. And so, and it's sometimes treacherous. But I was able, I mean, we had somebody who came in and the first thing they asked is how do I become a member of the, of the ministry protection unit? How would you even know that such a thing exists? Because we never advertised that. They wanted to get close. They were watching, I, I could tell, they were watching the flow of the money at 96th Street, which went this way. And that's why I would say it go this way sometime and this way. The, the, and they wanted to as a husband and wife. And when they realized that I knew what they were up to, you know that they actually left. And they, 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 but anyway, you, you pray for discernment and so forth. So look at uh, Nehemiah 6.3. Oh, you, you got rid of the time? <laughs> okay, all right. Uh, Nehemiah 6.3. Look at this. Nehemiah writes, so I sent messengers to them. That's the enemy saying, I am doing a great work so that I cannot come down. Why should the work cease while I leave and go down to you? And that's the answer that we have to do. We have to give when somebody's trying to knock us off our focus and take us from what we're doing. That you're doing a, a great work, a good work, and you will not stop for any of the foolishness that, uh, that's being proposed. Now, I love the proposed meeting place, the plain of Ono. For me, Ono represents the point of focus and determination. The enemies are focused and determined that, oh no, you will not finish the wall. And Nehemiah is focused and determined that, oh no, I will finish my work. And I call this the focus and determination that we must have when we set out to accomplish anything. That's not losing your focus. Many Christians start out on their spiritual race with great gusto and enthusiasm like a winner. And you know friends, family who started this way. But yet we find some of these Christians who have dropped out of the race. That leads Paul to ask, among other things, in Galatians 5-7, you can write it down. He asks this question. You ran well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? You could say who and what hindered you from obeying the truth. One possible answer for me is that you allowed someone or something to knock you off your focus. We're reminded of the importance of focus in Proverbs 4, verses 25 and 27. You can write it down. I'll read them to you right quickly. Proverbs 24, 25 says, let your eyes look straight ahead and your eyelids look right before you. 26, ponder the path of your feet and let your, uh, let your ways be established. And 27, do not turn to the right or the left. Turn or remove your foot from evil. To stay on top of any project or plan, you need to be as focused and determined as Nehemiah and not let anything knock you off your focus. He was a good example. Final step I have is this one, and I really wanted to finish this tonight, and, that step, and this is a simple one, step 12. To reach your goal, you have to work 
and you have to have a mind to work. And we know about a number of tools and weapons we have at our side as we engage in any project, faith being a principal one, prayer, love as we talked about, righteousness and so forth. But if you don't add work to these, <laughs> you can forget about it. You have to work. Look at Nehemiah uh, chapter 6, verse 15. It's recorded. So the wall was finished in 52 days. You need to see this. In 52 days. Now you have to understand the significance of this. If you've been to that part of the world as I have, the stones that the wall was made out are humongous. You wonder how they could even lift the stones. And they rebuilt the entire wall in 52 days. You could call it one of the miracles of the Bible. But it's not a miracle in the sense that God came down and lifted the stones for them. The people had to do the work. The people did the lifting. They did the work. So how did they accomplish it in 52 days? Go back to Nehemiah 4, verse 6. Because you need to see. You need to combine 6, 15 with Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 6. At 4, 6, it states, So we built a wall, and the entire wall was joined together up to half its height at that point. And this is what's important. For the people had a mind to work. That's the answer. You have to work, and your group has to have a mind to work. Very important. So those are the 12 steps. There are others, but I reduce it to those 12 steps. Now, learning from Nehemiah is far from over. However, what does the story of Nehemiah and his accomplishments tell us today about how we should conduct ourselves? We'll look at this next week. That'll be our final look at Nehemiah. But I'll give you a clue. It starts with what we are told to do by Jesus in Luke 10, 37. And you can look it up, Luke 10, 37. It's a story of the Good Samaritan. And at the very end of the story, this is 1037. It starts early on. You have, you'll see in the Bible where it starts. And I won't repeat the story tonight. But at the very end, he's telling this to the ruler who wants, the rich man who wants to know how to get ahead. And he tells him the things he do. So he tells the story of the Good Samaritan. And he ends by saying, go and do likewise. So the story of Nehemiah and these other stories of Joseph and other key people in the Bible is telling us to go and do likewise. Now, not go and build a wall, but whatever project we're rebuilding in our lives or whatever mission we're undertaking, go and do likewise like Nehemiah. So that concludes the message for tonight. We'll visit this one more time next week, and you don't want to miss that because I'm going to talk about the importance of stories like Nehemiah in the Bible and what they tell us in terms of what we need to do in terms of what projects lie before us. There's a great need for rebuilding the ministry here. And it gives us a lot of information in terms of how we might proceed. Thanks for listening. Our hope is that you received something that you could apply to your life and strengthen your faith. At Crenshaw Christian Center, New York, we believe that the Word of God is practical for everyday application. Feel free to stay in touch with us via social media, or you can give us a call at 212-749-9323. If you're in the New York area, you're welcome to join us at one of our services. Our Sunday morning service is at the New Yorker Hotel at 9.45 a.m. That's on 34th Street and 8th Avenue in New York City. Or join us for Bible study on Thursday evenings at our fellowship office, 470 7th Avenue on the 6th floor, right in Herald Square. Thanks again for listening. And remember, walk by faith, not by sight.